Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Welcome everyone to the CNS Optimizing Neurosurgical Podcast. My name is Laura Massey. I'm a faculty member at Allegheny Health Network in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Zuckerman, who's an assistant professor of neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery at Vanderbilt, along with our guests for today, Dr. Ellen Eyre, who is the chair and residency director of neurosurgery at Henry Ford Hospital, and Dr. Lynn Webb, who's the assistant dean at the School of Medicine and Center for Patient and Professional Advocacy at Vanderbilt. So welcome everyone. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Scott, would you like to lead us off tonight? Yeah, this is a really important uh, topic that affects all neurosurgeons. And we'll really be talking to Dr. Aaron, Dr. Webb about the dynamics of a team and how we can optimize the function of a team. As, as a neurosurgeon, by default, we're a leader in almost every um, scenario in the hospital, whether with students, residents, or with nurses, clinic staff, et cetera. So the first question I'll direct to Dr. Webb, and then we'd of course like to hear from Dr. Ayer, but Dr. Webb, in your role working with physicians across Vanderbilt Medical Center, uh, what are some early signs that you can tell uh, a neurosurgeon uh, that your team may not be functioning as well before it ends up into a major confrontation? So what are some early signs you can tell that you know, maybe we should intervene or have a talk and try and address some of these team dynamics before it turns out into a major issue? Well, thanks, uh, Scott. And uh, uh, certainly in my role at Vanderbilt, I do have the opportunity to work with uh, with teams uh, in team communication. And <clears throat> I'm gonna mention what I think of as early signs, middle signs, and higher level signs. Uh, early signs of team dysfunction, uh, based on my experience, would be <clears throat> beginning to talk about each other as a team and not to each other. And so comments like, uh, uh, this person is really impossible to work with anymore, or uh, this colleague is always in a bad mood, never in a good mood, are kind of the early signs of um, <clears throat> poor communication and dysfunction. As that progresses, uh, there's some evidence in the literature that team members feel more stressed, and more stress results in less communication among uh, team members, less creativity, uh, higher levels of tension, of course, and, and then uh, that begins to impact and contribute to higher level signs. Uh, an obvious one would be higher turnover among team members. Uh, we've done some research at Vanderbilt and others have that there begin to be uh, poor patient outcomes among dysfunctional teams, higher levels of surgical side infections, uh, higher levels of, seps of sepsis and other uh, poor outcomes. Uh, so those are the, some of the key early dysfunctions and higher level dysfunctions that, that I've seen. Great. I would have to completely agree with that. I would add one thing, which is particularly in uh, medical, in the medical field where we have teams that are of multiple different layers and levels of hierarchy, that sometimes I've seen some even more subtle things where 
individuals on the team don't want to specifically call out. They may not want to be as blunt as saying, I'm struggling with that individual or that person is not doing what they're supposed to or is you know, in a bad mood, but might start uh, lots of passing off and excuses for why something may not have happened the way it would be expected to go. And even more so, I find it notable when those excuses might allude to an individual as being part of the problem, but not wanting to be explicit about it because they want to try and veil it and make it seem like we're doing okay, we're getting by, I don't want to call anybody out, even though you can tell that there's an undertone of frustration that is um, rising to the surface. Yeah, great, great. I mean, just to dig a little deeper to both those answers, I mean, a situation that all of us are in is managing a busy clinic, right? You have a clinic staff with MAs, nurses, mid-level providers. Um, sometimes it can be hard to even know if these issues are going on because you're so, this, these things may be happening in other circles that you're not available. How do you make yourself available to, um, to be aware of some of these issues? So I certainly have uh, done rounds, right? Check in, uh, just let individuals know that I'm there, have the opportunity for them to say something one-on-one -on -one, because it's not always with a group of individuals. Hey, how are things going? And the other is just keeping the ear to the ground. I'm surprised at how often you can get a sense of struggles that are happening because groups just, they need to have it out. They, and they're in a side conversation and they may or may not pay attention to whether you're standing there or notice it. But those can be opportunities to, to kind of get a sense and to then offer assistance to somebody and say, hey, I, you know, I wasn't listening. I heard, but it sounded like some concerned voices, tone of voice. Is there anything um, I can do to help? Yeah, Dr. Ayer, that really gets back to the idea. I think we were speaking recently about the idea that sometimes as the leader of a team, your role is to really identify where the gaps are and to figure out where people are struggling, even if they're not able to voice it to you. I think, um, you know, a, a lot of us leave residency and go into academics or hospital employment. Some people are private and they really run their own crew as the actual only leader in that situation. When you're part of a larger team, whether it's an academic organization or a hospital employed organization, do you have any tips for partnering with, you know, that situation that Scott was just describing? You're in an office setting. There's an office manager, you know, a nurse manager and a, on a floor. What are some tips about how to kind of share the, the goal? You know, I think we all get back to patient care, um, but there are so many other challenges right now, staffing ratios, all kinds of different turnover pressures. What are some ways to kind of suss out what other people's motivations are and partner with them on how to, how to get the whole team moving in the right direction? I mean, this may sound uh, silly and too simplistic, but the first is just to ask, <laughs> to be able to, you know, just where, where are you at? How are you feeling about things? What struggles are you having? And what are your goals? So sometimes, particularly in really challenging situations, people feel like all they're doing is treading water and they can't get to the point 
of advancing a particular goal. And so stepping back and agreeing upon what those goals are, how we're going to navigate it, and then regularly checking in, I think is uh, a critical first step. Yeah, Dr. Webb, do you have, I mean, you probably observe all kinds of different teams working together. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm going to add a, a couple of real basic ones that really Dr. Arrow uh, partly mentioned is uh, so basic that sometimes in the heat of getting clinic done or in the heat of doing rounds, we really uh, forget to be what I call in the moment with each other. And in the moment basically means uh, uh, paying attention, uh, eye contact, calling a team member by name. Uh, learning all the team members' names that you can to uh, that you're working with. Uh, and I'm going to probably mention this a couple of times over the next uh, few minutes, but this idea of psychological safety, that, that, uh, that there's a, as little hierarchical feeling that there can be in a team, and that individuals, first of all, feel safe to speak up in the moment, uh, without fear of retribution or being yelled at. And when they do that, that they feel like uh, they're being heard. So I really am speaking about the essential element of a one-on-one -on -one conversation that is in the moment, that is active listening. And that really helps us, in my opinion, to develop that, uh, that shared common model about what's going on in the clinic today, and even what's going on with a specific patient. It's not just the, the uh, what the nurse perceives or the physician perceives. It's asking enough questions that everybody feels as though that they have a common agreement and alignment on the situation. Great. So uh, when, when you do identify that problem, I'll go back to you, Dr. Webb. When you do identify that problem, whether it's a resident, a nurse, a tech in the OR, and you need to have an intervention, how do you have that conversation? Uh, what's the best environment? What are some tips for having that difficult conversation, knowing that the uh, hierarchy full well exists? Well, some of, uh, some of you have probably heard the team, the term that we use at Vanderbilt often, and uh, we call it uh, having a cup of coffee with a colleague. So a cup of coffee is essentially a non-judgmental, very collegial, very low-key and non-emotional conversation with the goal of just essentially sharing an observation or sharing a concern and asking your colleague to reflect on that observation. It's not trying to, to decide who's right and who's wrong. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not trying to make a, feel, a colleague feel as though that uh, they're incompetent in some way and you have to tell them that, but it's just sharing an observation. And uh, this cup of coffee conversation at Vanderbilt started with some research by Bill Schaffner and others. And what he found, it, his research was actually trying to change the prescribing habits of physicians because there was lots of variance in the prescribing uh, habits of antibiotics. And what he found was if you give uh, meaningful stories and data to colleagues, especially healthcare professionals, they tend to self-correct. Uh, and so basically just making an observation to a colleague, having a cup of coffee, asking them to reflect, uh, 
four out of five times will result in a, in a change of approach, a change in attitude. Uh, and, uh, and that's really uh, something that we talk about a lot here at Vanderbilt. Yeah, Dr. Ayer. Yeah, you know, we also very much promote a culture of, of feedback, I guess would be the sort of the uh, flip side or another way of thinking about what Dr. Webb was just talking about, that feedback should be considered a natural thing and should be considered both positive and negative. And unfortunately, we tend to get to these conversations as a serious and a negative one rather than a constant um, two-way dialogue. And that is what we promote at, at Henry Ford. So for, for us, it is about saying, can we touch base? Can we establish what our goals are? Um, can we talk about how that went? And when we're providing that feedback, very much as Dr. Webb honed in on, it's about re repeating or presenting observations, actual events, things that have happened, not senses or feelings, um, but to be able to share when X happened, Y happened, how did you view that? How did that influence um, your response? Um, are there other ways in which we might want to think about that situation? And by doing that, we're just constantly promoting this culture that those conversations are positive and help everybody develop, but also that it's everybody wants to improve, right? So you don't have the sense of a punitive nature and we also really promote that this goes both ways. So for instance, it's not just about me giving feedback to faculty or residents or nurses or other team members, is I ask for it. What can I do better? What are things that our team can do better? And by doing so, that makes it a much more open dialogue and one in which people feel that psychological safety to speak up. Yeah, and I like one thing you both said, a prerequisite to these successful conversations is really listening uh, first. There's a great book, make a plug, uh, Chris Voss, it's called Never Split the Difference. He's a negotiator, but he's really a psychologist. Um, and he says the act of actually listening, full listening, no phone, no you know alarms going off, not thinking what you're going to say next, but really just listening is rarely done these days because it's exhausting. It takes a lot of focus, but it's um, it's really necessary to both the answers that you guys both said. Well, it also to me is really important because you're opening yourself up to that perspective because a lot of times we come to these things with sort of a predisposed assumption um, or the tendency of us as humans is come to it with an assumption about what the other individual's motivations or perspective is. And that fundamental to having well-functioning teams um, and psychological safety in those teams is that we maintain the assumption of um, a pure intentions and that we start off by understanding the other's perspective before uh, as an opener to the conversation. I, I would add uh, to Dr. Ayer that I think uh, most of those conversations go very well, but sometimes uh, individuals, as all of you know, get a little defensive uh, uh, when they get feedback. 
And that's okay. If, if an individual says, it's not me, it's the system, it's not me, it's you, it's not me, it's something else, then basically just, uh, as you said, stay, staying calm, active listening, acknowledging that uh, there, there are two sides to stories, and especially being very uh, empathetic, just uh, appreciating the situation that the colleague is in now. Um, and just, then just going back to the message, my, my goal today in this conversation was just to share some observations and, and thanks for listening and thanks for reflecting. Thanks, everyone. I think our next question was mainly focused in on, um, you know, mistakes or, or uh, issues you've seen leaders or surgeons make in the OR or clinic, but I'd also open it up to flip it around and say, what are, you know, we all have our innate communication styles, but th this is a constant skill that we're learning and evolving with. So what are either some bad examples you've used to inform your own uh, techniques moving forward or some good examples that you've adopted and brought into your own practice? I, I will say for me, I, it's, it goes both ways, right? So you, uh, I'm constantly learning and watching individuals in particular, I will say I've learned a lot from a colleague of mine who will just relax, take a, a deep breath and, and listen, and then take a moment before giving any response. And that is something that I have had to practice. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think we see more often than we'd like to some poor communication skills, uh, which tends to be rooted in, you know, frustration or anxiety about a situation and just comes out uh, poorly. So one of the things that I have seen kind of work is we all have to deal with those struggles, right? Something may just come out in a way that we really, under better circumstances, would not. But then to just quickly acknowledge and uh, I think the other thing that I would do there is to share my apologies. I'm very concerned about this situation. Let's take a step back and see how we can address it. Yeah, simple apology can really do wonders. Exactly right. And, and we do have to acknowledge certainly that uh, different people have different styles. I think as a professional, uh, especially uh, working in, in high-functioning teams, we have to be able to adjust to those styles, and we need a big tent uh, in our acceptance of different styles. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, all styles, especially in healthcare, have to be respectful and professional, uh, without doubt. And sometimes, uh, uh, we've all probably heard it said, this person is a great ex, but... You just have to put up with the yelling or you just have to put up with the cursing. Uh, and, and, and that's that's not a style that's consistent with the values of any organization. So we have to have a broad acceptance of styles, but we also have to be accountable for, uh, for how we uh, influence the, the culture and those interactions. Great, here's one question uh, that's familiar to all neurosurgeons. So. And we'll talk about the operating room a little bit, uh, where you can have very different teams. Clinic, you have the same team. When you're working with trainees, residence fellows, they'll be the same from year to year. But let's say you walk in the operating room and you have a scrub tech you've never worked with before, a circulator maybe you've seen a couple of times, but you never worked with them. And even your reps, at least in our spine cases, Laura, you can count on. And it's a whole new team. You've got about 15 minutes before you have to start getting the patient ready. How do you get 
everyone on the same page in a short amount of time for this case that may be, you know, six, seven, eight hour case uh, with a lot of nuances to it? How do you quickly try and establish that relationship? That is a tough one. <laughs> and I think the only answer I really have to that one is sort of trying to do a quick huddle, being able to just say, hey, let's introduce ourselves to one another. Um, what is your background? What of these cases similar or not to this have you done? What's your familiarity with it? Again, asking first so that they you know where they're coming from. Say, okay, here's here are the areas of this case or parts of this case that are gonna be a particular challenge. Um, if I get real calm or short short answered, it's because I'm I'm stressed. And so, you know, that may mean X, Y, or Z, um, or I'm gonna ask you to do this in that situation. But just giving, I think it's easy to, to, you can get a brief kind of overview of expectations and then also understand where someone's coming from. If you are open to where they are and then coming and saying, okay, so these are the critical things that I'm gonna ask of you. Let's walk through those before we get started. That goes a very long way. Uh, very good examples. Uh, I would add, uh, uh, a book from um, Amy Edmondson on teaming. And, and she really talks about in that book, uh, teams on the fly, essentially. Scott is what I think uh, you might be referring to. You get in the OR and it's a different team. And and she had some uh, just some key elements of that. And one uh, is uh, already mentioned by, by Dr. Ayer, but in a few short minutes, you have to number one, really try to know each other. And, and that knowing each other is either you see someone's name tag or you ask them their name. You have to have clear role, uh, role clarity, meaning uh, everyone uh, knows their own role and uh, they have common expectations about how that role is gonna be uh, fulfilled. Um, I think in the setting of especially the, the OR environment, uh, you, one has to be able to adjust to team members' varying skills. In other words, on a given day, you might have a, uh, a tech that you've worked with all the time and you know how that uh, person, what that, those person's skills are, but you might have someone that's there the first uh, day, brand new person, and you have to acknowledge that and then adjust to varying skills uh, as you can. Um, the other thing that she mentioned was always asking clarifying questions. So especially if it's with a new team or has new team members, uh, asking lots of questions, listening hard are key elements of forming that team very quickly on the fly. So in that scenario, and then Laura, Laura, I'll give it back to you. In that scenario, hour six of a case, you're handing an instrument the wrong way for about the seventh time. You haven't said anything because you're trying to be nice about it. And then you blow up and you lose your cool. <laughs> and knowing well, you got about three or four or more hours of work to do. That never happens. <laughs> uh, I know. I was going to say, Dr. Webb, how would you handle that? And Dr. Ray, how would you handle that? Because that's never happened to you. But um, how, what do you do in that situation? Knowing in the back of your head, you probably didn't act in the best way, but you still have to finish the case. I will say that I typically, I, I, I have gotten to the point where I now know enough about myself that I do try to have that as a teaching moment or clarification moment before getting to the point of, of blowing up that 
Um, I try to not get terse unless I have taught several times the same thing and it is not coming back in the way that I have asked. Um, but, you know, we all have moments where it's unexpected. And then again, I would just fall back to take a breath, say, I'm sorry, this is stressful right now. And let's go over how we're going to do this for the next uh, remainder of the case. I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, having those self-awareness skills, as Dr. Ayer said, uh, uh, in the moment is excellent. But sometimes uh, we we blow off steam. But normally, after we do that, within seconds, we recognize that uh, we may not have made a, a good decision in doing that, and just acknowledging and apologizing, and hopefully having a team member in that room that in a calm and uh, non-judgmental way uh, might help to point out uh, to uh, to you that uh, it, it's time to take a moment. Let's take a moment. So I agree, um, uh, being able to be self-aware is important, but if it happens, then uh, acknowledging and, uh, and re-establishing the team uh, very quickly uh, is very important in that setting, especially. Those have all been such helpful tips. I think, you know, just uh, looking back on it, I think um, when I look back at the times that I've observed people in the OR, some of the people who are best at leading and at, at moving through this are people who are reflective in that way. And I haven't always found that to be the case with some of the people that sometimes are still senior to you. If you're in a resident role or or even if you're in a leadership role, how do you deal with someone who, I think you kind of started to allude to this, the, the cup of coffee is probably a good first step, but how do you deal with people who don't have that self-reflection or have those outbursts and, you know, I guess bringing that back home, you know, it's easy for us as neurosurgeons, we've all been through training, we've experienced this um, level of stress that we're, we're kind of desensitized to. And I think when a, you know, an OB nurse walks in to help you out with your case for the first time, that seems like a stressful job, but they're just not used to the same things that we do. And so walking into our room, they're already at a 10 out of 10. And so as Dr. Ayer was saying, like those first few minutes, and as you've been saying, those are the minutes you have to reestablish a little bit of a safety zone. And so if someone doesn't do that to start out with, you're already back at that 10, then how do you, you know, how can you as someone in the room maybe help to bring that down, even if you're not the leader? Dr. Ayer, you begin. Well, that's I a loaded question. Have, yeah, it is a loaded question. I think that um, the cup of coffee, like you mentioned, is one that is a great place uh, to start. I think the struggle is when those situations continue to come up and how is it you can help others identify that as a problem and navigate it because I think I, an issue that I continue to struggle with is when somebody um, struggles with how they handle some of these situations, but you also very much recognize the stressful situation that has brought about that, um, that sort of response. And trying to, the best that I have come to is to try and bring it back around and bring the perspective of the others that are in the room so that the 
individual can maybe take a step back and think of ways to connect with those other individuals that are frustrating them um, in the hopes of actually uh, developing a more productive uh, relationship or situation. But I, this is an area that I, I would love, Dr. Webb, to hear your thoughts on. Well, the, uh, based on data we've collected for several years about these kind of behaviors, the good news is that 90% of individuals never have a single report by a colleague associated with unprofessional behavior or essentially behavior that's inconsistent with the values of the organization. Uh, I, I happen to read Vanderbilt's reports every morning that might be associated with unprofessional conduct. And very often the reporter says, what I uh, observed or what I experienced was inconsistent with inconsistent with uh, Vanderbilt's uh, values. And so if 90%, first of all, never have a report, approximately 7% maybe have an occasional event just in, of the type that we just talked about that uh, out of a sense of frustration, uh, some, some um, open expression of that frustration, uh, and it rarely happens. And then our data have found that 3% of individuals account for half the reports. And so organizations <laughs> and leaders, essentially, uh, uh, like a department chair or other leaders, uh, must acknowledge that there are a few individuals who tend to have those patterns and uh, team members will expect to those, for those patterns uh, to be addressed in, in some fashion. And so, uh, and the good news is that we found is that uh, more than 80% of the time, if a, uh, a leader uh, shares this information, uh, it seems as though you've had a, a pattern of this behavior, want to talk with you about it, want to just talk with you about how I might help you resolve that pattern, more than 80% of individuals will self-correct. And so, it's really the combination of, first of all, uh, speaking up in the moment, but if that doesn't seem to work, being willing to, uh, to uh, record an observation and trusting if someone does that, that the organization and the leader are willing to address those two or 3% uh, that, that, that can uh, change behavior, but it has to be acknowledged that they might need help. Well, thank you all. That was uh, a lot to think about as we <laughs> move back into clinic in the OR tomorrow. So um, I would very much like to thank all of you guys for joining us today on the CNS Optimizing Neurosurgical Practice podcast and stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. <laughs>